All right, well, we're going to continue this morning with our series based on the tradition of the Jesse tree. Last week, we introduced that Advent tradition, and we saw the first five ornaments, each of which point us to Jesus in some way. The tree stump was the first one that we looked at, and that reminds us of the importance of seeing Jesus' family tree. That's the whole idea of the Jesse tree. And all that that tells us about who Jesus is and what he came to do. The world ornament reminded us of creation and of mankind's creation in the image of God. And Jesus is the one who truly shows us the image of God as it really is. The apple ornament reminds us of mankind's fall into sin and the need for a savior who would rescue us from our sin. The rainbow ornament reminds us of God's mercy in the promise given to Noah and of God's mercy shown to us in Christ. And the tent ornament reminds us of God's promise to Abraham of the promised land, which is really a promise given to Jesus that he would inherit the whole world. And this morning, we'll add the next five ornaments and we'll learn how they help us along in understanding the story of Jesus and his arrival at Christmas. And I'm realizing, as I'm saying that, that I left them in my bag. So, pause for just a minute. All right. Well, we left off last week by talking about Abraham and the land promise that God gave him. And this week, we're going to continue with Abraham and another promise that God gave to him. The sixth ornament for our Jesse tree is the star. And this calls to mind the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15. So as we go through these, again, I have the references up here of the passages that I'll be reading. You're welcome to turn there and follow along, or you can just listen. But just know that those are the passages that I'll be reading that kind of tell us about each one of these. Well, after the promise in Genesis 12, Abraham settled in Canaan. And God repeated his promise to him, telling him that, Abraham, your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, impossible to count. Well, that's a great promise. The problem was that as time passed, Abraham and Sarah didn't have any descendants. So in chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham asked God about it. And here's what we read in Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. There's a couple of details about that promise that are important for us to see. First of all, God tells Abraham that Eliezer would not be his heir, but instead Abraham's very own son would be his heir. Abraham was Eliezer's servant. He was the head of the household. 
He's the chief member of the household. But God said that this promise was that Abraham's son would receive it. As, as the story goes on, we see that God blesses Abraham and Sarah with a son named Isaac. And the promise comes down through Isaac's line. Isaac's line is the line from which the Jewish nation grows. Well, second, God tells Abraham that his descendants would be as innumerable as the stars of the heavens. And this tells us that the fulfillment that God has in mind is vast. This is no small promise. God has in view what John describes in the book of Revelation as a great multitude that no one could number. And finally, Abraham's response is that he believed the Lord. And like we saw last week, God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. Now, when we put those three observations all together, the promise leads us directly to Jesus. Here's what I mean. Like the land promise, this promise functions kind of on two levels. There's a surface level, a physical fulfillment that's obvious in the Bible story. God blesses Abraham and Sarah with Isaac. Isaac has children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and eventually we have the Israelites in Egypt, and there's a huge number of them when they come out of Egypt. God leads them to the promised land. They settle there. They become a great nation. That's the physical surface level fulfillment of that promise. But that surface level leads us to a deeper level too. And the deeper level is the real significance of the promise. The New Testament writers help us to understand this. Remember what we saw last week? The true children of Abraham are those who have faith, like Abraham. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. If they have faith in Jesus, then they are Abraham's descendants. So all believers are the true descendants of Abraham. That means all believers are the true fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. Number the stars. That's what your descendants, those who have faith, will be like. That's why John in Revelation calls them a great multitude that no one could number just like the stars or the dust of the earth. But the question is, how do you get from the physical aspect to the spiritual? What's the link that connects the descendants of Isaac to the spiritual descendants by faith? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, a physical descendant of Abraham. And as we'll see later in the story, he's also the rightful king of Israel the king of those physical descendants. Now Israel rejected him as king, of course, but he's not just the rightful king of Israel. He's the king of the whole world. We saw that last week as well. Remember the promises given to Abraham about the land were really promises given to Jesus about the whole world. When Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world, He's telling us that the source or basis of his kingdom is not earthly. It's not physical. His kingdom, meaning the whole world, is given to him by God. We saw that in Psalm 2. And the promises to Abraham actually have that in view. Now, what is a king? Well, a king is someone who, yes, they're in charge, but they represent their people. 
Well, Jesus is this perfectly righteous king. So his righteous status can stand for all the people that he represents. So who are his people? Who does he represent? All those who have faith in him, just like the faith of Abraham. Abraham's true descendants are not his physical descendants, but his faith descendants, Jew or Gentile. And that's who's ultimately in view in this promise to Abraham, that his descendants would be like the stars of the heavens, a great multitude that no one can number. It's all those who are represented by the king who was born in Bethlehem at Christmas, King Jesus. So is there someone that would be willing to come up and help us put this ornament on? And I'm going to see if we have people who weren't able to do it last week. Come on up. Just try to put that on so everybody can see what that is. That's our star ornament that reminds us of this promise to Abraham. Thank you. All right, well, the next ornament on our Jesse tree is the ladder. And this points us to the story in Genesis 28 of Jacob's vision or dream. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. He's the son of Isaac. God had given Jacob the same promise that he gave to Abraham and to Isaac. He'd passed it on, this promise of land and descendants. He told Jacob that this promise that was given to Abraham would be fulfilled through Jacob's descendants. Jacob had a twin brother named Esau. Esau was born first, but God had chosen Jacob as the one who would receive the promise. Now, Jacob had deceived his father, Isaac. At this point, Isaac was old and feeble, but he deceived him into giving the blessing to him instead of his older brother. And he had to leave home because of it, caused all kinds of conflict. And as he traveled, he camped for the night and he fell asleep. And in a dream, God came to him. And here's what Genesis 28, 10 through 17 tells us. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So this promise about land and descendants is repeated here. But the interesting thing is the vision of the ladder with the angels ascending and descending on it. The bottom of the ladder is on earth and the top of it reaches to the heavens. In other words, it's the connecting point between heaven and earth. 
It's the way in which heaven comes to earth. So what does this have to do with Christmas or the story of Jesus? Well, when we get to the Gospels in the New Testament, something very interesting is recorded by John. In John 1, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he's calling his disciples to, to follow him, he called Philip, and Philip in turn called Nathaniel, told Nathaniel about Jesus. And Nathaniel said that he doubted that anything good could come out of Nazareth. But once Jesus told him that he had seen Philip under the fig tree, before Philip ever told him, Nathaniel believed. In fact, he called Jesus the King of Israel, the Son of God. And in response, Jesus says something very interesting. John 1:51, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite term for himself. So Jesus is clearly referring to Jacob's dream, and Jesus is saying that he is the ladder. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. Jesus is the connection between heaven and earth. Jesus is the means by which heaven will come to earth. And the Christmas story is of the one who, as Nathaniel said, is both the king of Israel and the son of God, coming from heaven to earth. He will be the means by which heaven will enter earth and fulfill the promise that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this promise of land and descendants. Jesus will inherit the whole world, and his people will be all those who have faith in him, and God's means of fulfilling the promise will be that God himself comes from heaven to earth. Jacob's ladder to fulfill the promise himself. So is there someone that would come up and put this ornament on the tree for us? Who's willing to do that? I see a hand back there. You can do the next one. We've got several more. Go ahead and put that ladder on there where everybody can see. Thank you. All right, well, the eighth ornament for our Jesse tree is the coat of Joseph. This calls to mind for us the entire story of Joseph, which in many ways foreshadows the story of Jesus. Let me just summarize the story of Joseph for you. It's probably a familiar story for most of you. Joseph was one of the 12 sons that was born to Jacob. He was one of the sons from Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. So he was favored by Jacob, but he was disliked by his brothers. Jacob gave Joseph a coat, and that coat that you see here signified his favor that was shown to Joseph. And that was a symbol then of why his brothers hated him. When Joseph had dreams that indicated that the rest of his family would bow down to him, it pushed his brothers over the edge. When Joseph was sent to check on them one day while they were out in the fields, they banded together to get rid of him. They sold him into slavery in Egypt. They took his coat, they tore it to shreds, they soaked it in blood in order to convince their father that he had been devoured by wild animals. Well, 
Once he was in Egypt, Joseph served his master Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, and he served him well and faithfully, rising through the ranks in, in order to eventually oversee the whole household. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph, Joseph fled, but Potiphar believed his wife's lies, and Joseph was sent to jail. In jail, Joseph again found himself rising through the ranks as he served faithfully. When two fellow inmates had dreams, Joseph was able to interpret them. One of them, Pharaoh's cupbearer, was restored to his position just like Joseph said would happen. And years later, when Pharaoh had dreams that he wanted interpreted, the cupbearer remembered Joseph, and so Pharaoh called him from prison, and Joseph was able to interpret the dreams. And he began to serve in Pharaoh's household. And once again, Joseph rose through the ranks as he served well and faithfully until he became second in command in all of Egypt. Joseph was able to lead Egypt to be prepared for this devastating famine that was coming. So that when it came, the rest of the world ended up coming to Egypt for help. And when Joseph's own brothers came to Egypt for help, they unwittingly came before Joseph, whom they could no longer recognize. And Joseph tested them to see their sorrow and their repentance over what they had done. And eventually he revealed himself to them. He was able to bring his whole family to Egypt and to provide for them there. And at the very end of the story, when Jacob, Joseph's father, died, the brothers worried that Joseph would now take his revenge on them since Jacob was gone. And here's what Joseph said to them. This is Genesis 50, verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring, about, to bring it about that people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, there are a lot of parallels between Joseph's story and Jesus' story. Let me just give you a few. First, Jesus was hated by his own people, where Joseph could be faulted for how he handled those relationships with his brother. Jesus didn't do anything wrong, but he simply did what was right, and he was hated for it. Second, Jesus also was stripped of his robe and the signs of his father's favor. Third, Jesus was sold for money, just like Joseph. He was betrayed by those close to him. He was turned over to the Gentiles. Fourth, Jesus served faithfully, but he also faced false accusations. People lied about him, just like Joseph was lied about. Fifth, Jesus was thrown in prison. He ended up standing before earthly rulers, just like Joseph did. Sixth, Jesus was God's means of providing salvation for people. Just like Joseph was used by God to provide for people in the famine, Jesus is God's means of providing for our spiritual need of salvation. And seventh, Jesus was exalted after his humiliation, just like Joseph came to rule over the land of Egypt. Jesus was raised to life and exalted to the throne of God in heaven, where he now rules and reigns. The list really could go on and on. I saw one person who gave 60 parallels between the story of Joseph and the story of Jesus. But I think what ties it all together at the end of the day is what Joseph said to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That describes the crucifixion of Jesus exactly. In fact, listen to what Peter said 
in his sermon to the Jews in Acts 2. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In that statement is both the sovereignty of God and the wickedness of man. And God uses the wickedness of man for good. He glorifies himself. He saves his people through the most wicked act in all of human history, the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's why the story of Joseph is such a powerful part of the story of Jesus. All right, so we have the coat ornament. Who was ready to come up here? Thank you. Just put that right on there where everybody can see. That's perfect. Thanks. <laughs> Our ninth ornament then is the, tenth, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, of course, are the moral law that God set in stone at Mount Sinai when he formed Israel into a nation. And I'd just like to read them to you. And I'll read the version that is in Deuteronomy when Moses is recounting this to Israel before he leaves the scene. And here's what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord commanded you, that your days may be long, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery, 
And you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. You know, a lot of Christians think that when Jesus came, he did away with the law. Now we're under grace, not law. But that's not at all the right way to understand Jesus and the law. Here's what Jesus himself says in Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. See, Jesus affirms that the law continues to have force and authority. There's three aspects to the Old Testament law. God's moral law doesn't ever change. It's based on God's character and Jesus fulfills it with perfect obedience. That's what's reflected in those Ten Commandments. The ceremonial law, things like sacrifices and festivals, those things were designed to be temporary markers pointing to Jesus. So Jesus fulfills those things because he's the very thing that the shadows were pointing to. And the civil law is the application of the moral law to the nation. Now, every nation is responsible to apply God's moral law in their own land. And while those applications may look different from nation to nation, the law itself is unchanged. Jesus is the king of the nations, and one day all of the nations will obey him, which means that their civil laws will be embodiments of God's moral law. So to suggest that Jesus does away with the law is just wrong. Rather, Jesus establishes and fulfills God's law perfectly. So Christmas is the arrival of the one who perfectly fulfills God's law. Who would be willing to come up and put the Ten Commandments ornament on the tree for us? I see a hand back there, and then you got the next one, okay? You go ahead and hang that on there anywhere. All right, very good. Thank you. All right, well, our 10th and final for this morning ornament for the Jesse tree is a cluster of grapes. This reminds us of the story of Israel going into the promised land of Canaan. In Numbers 13, we read the story of the spies that were sent into the land. They saw great potential, but they also saw great threats and danger. So they were afraid to go in. Here's how the story unfolds in Numbers 13. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two of them. That's how big the cluster of grapes was. It took two people to carry that one cluster of grapes on a pole. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. 
At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Those are the giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Now, because the nation chose to ignore Caleb and to side with the other spies, they disbelieved God. They ended up with the punishment of having to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And it was the next generation that God led into the land. The cluster of grapes symbolized the fruitfulness of the land, the blessings that God had promised to his people. And we've seen that Jesus is the one who fulfills these promises of the land. And we as his people receive the blessings of the land because of him. In fact, Paul tells the Ephesians, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But who is it that's blessed that way? It's those who have faith in Jesus, those who believe. Just like it was the believing generation that entered the land of Canaan while the unbelieving generation died outside. In the same way, it's those who are of faith who receive the blessings in Jesus. So this one who arrives at Christmas is the one who leads his people into the blessings that only he can give. All right, our last ornament this morning. Come on up. Hang that on there for us. Great, thank you. All right, so what have we seen this week? Well, the star reminds us of God's promise of descendants to Abraham. Those who have faith in Jesus are the true descendants of Abraham, a great multitude that no one can number. The latter reminds us of Jacob's dream. Jesus is the connecting point between heaven and earth. He's the one who brings heaven to earth. The coat reminds us of the story of Joseph and how God uses the wickedness of men for good. And the most wicked act of men, the crucifixion of Jesus, is what God used for the great good of our salvation. The Ten Commandments reveal the perfect law of God, a law which we could not keep, but Jesus perfectly fulfills and establishes God's law. And the grapes remind us of the blessing God promises his people by faith. All those who have faith in Jesus experience the blessings of God given to us in Christ. As last week, hopefully as that story continues to unfold, we just see more and more the sovereignty of God as he designed this plan and how all of it leads us to Jesus. 
And all of that is the background for what we celebrate when we celebrate Jesus' birth at Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and again for how so much of what we read through the pages, especially of the Old Testament, is leading us forward to Christ. Help us to have eyes to see. Only you can give us those eyes. You, you can shine that light that helps us to see. And so we pray that you would help us to understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of this whole story and of all the parts of it too. And we pray this this morning in his name. Amen.